Mojave Beach Productions. I was in an automobile accident a little while back, a year and a half ago or so. And uh, oddly enough, the day of the accident was the first day we were to start recording Mojave Beach Productions. Jack Diamond was going to be our announcer, and he was all set to be at my house at 3 o'clock that day. And I go out, I'm going to run a little errand right on my very own street. A little 13-year-old girl decided to take her first drive of her life. She runs a stoplight, and she smacks me and T-bones me. So at 3 o'clock, Jack is ready to record, but I'm having an operation. Well, we went from the hospital, where they put me back together very nicely, and then over to rehab. So I'm in rehab for a while, and I'm saying, I don't understand your timing, God. I just don't get it. I thought this was a good thing we were going to do with Mojave Beach. I, I thought it was a project that was rather blessed. And now here I am in rehab. Are you telling me I'm not supposed to be doing these podcasts, that this isn't something that's a blessed project? Are you telling me it's not a good idea? What are you telling me? If you don't want me to do this, this is all I've thought about for the last year and a half. If you don't want me to do this, what do you want me to do? Give me some direction. So here I'm sitting in this bed, and I'm just really giving God what for for interrupting with my plans that I thought were his plans. Well, during the course of the time I'd been in rehab, a minister had befriended me. He came in, I believe it was every Wednesday, and he gives a little sermon, and people come out of their rooms and go into the social area, and he has a sermon. Very nice. He had be begun coming into my room and talking to me, and I liked him just enormously. We really didn't talk so much about God. We kind of talked about things. But every Wednesday, I tried to get into my little wheelchair and cart myself over into the social room and, and listen to him. So on this particular day that I'm really, really giving God a fit about, what is it you want me to do? Give me a sign. He opens the door, the minister does, and he says, uh, are you coming out to join us? And I said, no, I can't today. I've got to call insurance people and all kinds of things. I can't come out today, thank you. And so he said, do you mind if I leave this? So he walked into the room and he threw the little program, a little two-page pamphlet on the foot of my bed, and then he walked out. I didn't pay any attention because I'm having this heavy conversation with God and what do you want me to do and show me. And Well, when I finish ranting and raving, I take a deep breath and I reach down and I pick up the pamphlet that was left on my bed. It only had two lines on it. Nice, pretty little pamphlet with just two lines. And those lines said, return home and tell everyone the story of what God has done for you. Beach Productions and the Voice of Halana bring you stories of faith and inspiration, made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International.
Angels in Evidence, Episode 1. We finally made it, Jack. It's a little bit later, a little bit down the line from what we had in mind. I think we've done 55 productions now altogether. And uh, we finally get around to return home and tell everybody what God has done for you. But you've, you've got so many people now that are working with you and so much talent besides just besides me. You've got all these other people that, that have reached out and are helping you with this whole Mojave Beach Productions. It's wonderful. Well, I appreciate that, but I appreciate the fact that you were here before anybody else. It was just you and me, bud. Yep. We were going to do this. Yep. And uh, life went on, and, and uh, I mean, I didn't even... I couldn't even get in here to get to a microphone or my equipment for months and months because I couldn't get my wheelchair through the door. But uh, anyway, everything, you know what? <laughs> it's all in God's timing, not ours. He has a totally different calendar than I've got, I'll tell you. Oh, that's right. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, there's so much blessing in it being longer because all the time I was confined and, and I couldn't get out to do any of this. I had time to really rethink everything. And I think it's really better because of the delay. Oh, I'm sure it is because, as like I said, all the different people that you have working with you now have got so much talent lined up and willing to step up and, and help you with this whole project, Mojave Beach Productions. And you say you've, you've done how many? I think we have something like 55 out there now. Well, you and I couldn't have done that by ourselves. Oh, we could too. Well, have great faith in us. I, I'm <laughs> just saying that I think that you've got so much other talent from so many other people that have made this had made this possible something that I've I've watched you work on for ever since I've known you 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 have wanted to do this project for years and, it, and yeah. it finally has come to fruition and it's yeah. in the process and it's and it's moving forward it's wonderful I, I I am just really pleased and I'm really happy for you and for for this whole Mojave Beach Productions thing that is going on now. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the fact that you're still around. You know, you could have gone on your merry way and said, hey, you don't need me anymore, but you know, you're there. And if people listen, uh, you do, you were the voice of Mojave Beach uh, during all of our announcing at first. And then you got involved in things and you weren't able to get over here. And I don't know what else happened, but Jeff Evans jumped in Yeah. and God love him. Yeah. He's taken over now when it was difficult for you to get here. Mm -hmm. You know, over the years, because I've certainly known you longer than just the time we're talking about. Oh, yes. I have to tell people how we met. You had your radio show, and, and I heard it every day, and I admired it so much. And I'd had a radio show in Florida called Sentimental Journey. So when I moved here, and I thought, well, maybe that station would like to do my radio show. So I go up to your radio station and you're not there, and they tell me that you'll be in any minute, and I wait for you, and you finally get there. And I say, hi, my name is Esther. I had a radio show in Florida about old music. I just wondered if you'd be interested, and you said, nope. And we've been <laughs> friends ever since. You just said, nope, and that was it. And, and then we became friends. And then I called you later that night, it seems to me. I remembered we, we talked did. and we had the wonderful, marvelous conversation. We and did. We became best friends virtually overnight. Yes, and you were madly in love with your girlfriend. And I was madly in love with being divorced. It was very nice. So we, <laughs> we got off to a good friendly start that way. Uh -huh. But your son had just died. Austin had just died not too long before. Yeah. And when you told me about that, and I told you about my son having died, 
And somehow our conversation drifted into evidence of God, evidence of our children living beyond this small lifetime. Yes. And we both had evidence, and that was certainly a bond. It just seemed logical that if we're going to talk about angels, I've been wanting to do a book called Angels and Evidence. He even made a cover for it, I think, five years ago. But it's just logical you and I would talk about this. And I think if anyone hear the words angel, they have their own idea. Something pops in their mind, a picture. We all see visuals when we hear a word. Oh, yeah. And I imagine it's a hallmark angel that people see, the little blonde, curly-haired beauty with the wings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you go back and you ask yourself, if you're going to do a serious podcast on angels, I think the most basic thing to establish, what is an angel? What is an angel? Forget Hallmark cards. Forget our pretty little valentines. Biblically, and I'm not a scholar, and I'm not a theologian, but biblically, what is an angel? That's where we get our definition, I think, for angels is from the Bible. And it, and it talks about them. That's where you know, I think we as, as human beings have found out about them. Well, angel comes from the Greek word angelus. Yeah. And uh, it means messenger. When I think I know something, I try to find something that either substantiates it or sets me straight. And one of the things that I found interesting was a Bible passage. Talking about <laughs> Daniel? Yeah, Daniel. Well, I have that here, 8.15 to begin with where he says, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And then read a Daniel uh, ten sixteen. Yeah, the one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. See, looked like a man. Looked like a man, yeah. So where do we come up with these strange ideas of what an angel looks like? What does an angel do? What's his job? Well, that's a good question. My understanding is that they were created for one purpose, and that was to praise God and then to be on hand where they're needed. I was thinking the other day uh, when I was giving screenwriting workshops, I had a fellow who was a writer, and he was telling me about uh, his wife getting a new car. And that reminds me, his story reminds me of how in the Bible it says that angels take on the form of man when they help. What's that story about Bill? You tell it better than I do. Well, I don't know about that, but Bill had uh, got a new car for his wife, and he had a trip to go on, and it was a long trip through the Flint Hills now between Topeka, where we are, and down the road. It's right through the Flint Hills, and it's like a straight and narrow road. It's just for miles and miles and miles of flatland out there. And Bill was traveling on that road in a brand-new car that he didn't know anything about, but he, he took it because he didn't think his wife would be able to figure out all the gadgets and everything that, that came with it. So. And he said that he would tell her how it all worked. Yeah, he would figure it out and then tell her how how to do that. So uh, in the process of driving down the road, he got a flat tire. In the Flint Hills. In the Flint Hills. Where you can see for miles around because it's very flat. And he started looking for uh, a spare tire, and he couldn't find it. I mean, he looked everywhere he could think of. He 
and he, he didn't have the owner's manual was not in the car to, to show him where the spare tire was so here he was stuck out in the middle of nowhere with nobody around and all of a sudden off in the distance he sees a car coming down the road and this guy stops and pulls over and says hey buddy uh, you need some help and he told him what the problem was he couldn't he had this brand new car that he couldn't find the spare tire for and it's and the man says oh funny thing I bought my wife a car just like this and we had the same problem and I'll show you exactly where the spare tire is so he did he showed him where the spare tire was and when he was getting his spare tire out the guy gets in his car and drives off and waves and Bill looks and the car is gone right it just as, I, as Bill said it to me he turned away to look where where he'd been told the tire was going to be found yeah where it's pointed to and when he looked back up to wave back at the guy and say thanks the car was nowhere in sight yeah and you could see for miles in every Nobody direction. Around, yeah. And so, I've, I've heard stories like this before about yeah. people just appearing out of nowhere uh, to help. And generally, there's some sort of a logical explanation. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you hear the story, 50 different stories, and 49 have a very logical, earthly explanation. It's the one that doesn't. Yeah. That is angels in evidence. And there's something else that happened to me when I was 19, and uh, it's the only thing like this that's ever happened, although I've had a lot of uh, supernatural experiences. But this brings up the question of, is it true that angels sing in choirs? Is it true that angels tend to humans uh, and sing praises? In other words, I began to look in the Bible. I wanted some I wanted some understanding of what had happened to me. And I began to look in the Bible and looking for places that referred to angels, multitudes of them singing. Do you have any references for those? Well, a couple of them that I was looking at is one was is found in Job thirty eight seven and it says, Quote, the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, angels, shouted for joy. And uh, this took place at the Earth's creation. And then a second occasion is found in Luke uh, 2, 13 to 14, quote, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then in Revelation, it says, Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Anyway, I'm just going to tell this little story about what I happened when I was 19. It's, it's a wonderful story. Um, I had been in Texas for the last several months and when I came back my two roommates and myself lived in a little apartment uh, and uh, between our, myself at that apartment and a girlfriend of mine there was a little town called Sulphur Springs. This is in Florida, right outside of Tampa. So to get from my house to her house, I had to go through the little bitty town. There's a little bitty bridge right in the middle of town that took me over to her house, which was on quite a shaded street, tree-lined street. So I went over and I saw her. As I recall, her name was Dorothy. It's been so long ago. I haven't been 19 for a while. <laughs> but <laughs> when I left Dorothy, I stepped out of her apartment uh, into the driveway and she was at the screen door and and she was saying something like I'm really sorry you missed Smitty but he'll be back tomorrow that was her husband 
And I said, well, give him my love and, and tell him I said hi. And she said, um, how long were you in Texas? And I said, well, about four months. Why? And she said, I don't know. It just seems like you were gone forever or something like that. Then she said, oh, by the way, Esther. And I turned around and she said something else. Now, later I put those little bits together because it helps explain some of what happened immediately after. So I go on uh, down her long driveway. At the end of the driveway, she has a mailbox, and the mailbox clearly has their name on it. Uh, keep those little elements in your mind, and it'll help everything come together. And it was about 10 o'clock at night now, and the street was really quite dark. As I stepped onto the sidewalk, a voice came to me from under a huge tree across the street, and I could kind of make out the outline of a car. And a male voice said, hey, Esther. Well, Tampa was my home, had been my home for some time at school there, knew a lot of people there. So I did not question that it was somebody I knew. And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, uh, when'd you get back? Now, mind you, at that point, I hadn't put together that Dorothy had asked me something like that right out the door and had said it loudly because I'm in the driveway. So this is all making sense to me that this is somebody I know. And I said, I just got back just the other day. And um, he said, well, we missed you. Where are you staying? And uh, I said, uh, on the other side of uh, Sulphur Springs. But then I started feeling uneasy because I couldn't see him in the darkness. He was in the driver's seat. But I could, I'd walked over closer to the car. But I, I couldn't see him, and I didn't know who I was talking to. And he said, uh, you don't recognize me, do you? And I said, I can't really see you. He said, I'm a friend of Smitty's. Well, now again. Okay, he must know them. I must know him. So he said, well, I'm, a, I'm on my way over that direction. Jump in, I'll give you a ride. And I said, no, no, thank you. I'd just as soon walk. And he said, well, that's silly. What am I going to do, drive along beside you while you're walking? We're going the same place. That's silly. And after a moment, I thought, well, that is silly. I mean, my goodness, he knew my name. He knew I'd been gone. He knows Smitty. This is silly of me. So he was creeping along beside me, and I still couldn't see him real well. But finally he said, he said, don't make me get out and get you because this is just stupid. And I finally, I, I did, I went around and I did the dumbest thing in the world. I got in the car, but you have to remember, I truly believe this was somebody I probably knew. Mm -hmm, yeah. And, and I'm 19, my brain was not fully developed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I got in the car. I scooted real close to the to the door. It was in my mind. I do I know him, and and if we stop at a stoplight, and I determine when we get in the light that I don't know him, I'm going to jump out. So we finally we got into the bridge that crosses over at Silver Springs. But instead of crossing the bridge, he turned to the right, which took us out to the highway, and then I got alarmed. And I said, "We're we supposed to go across the bridge." And he said, "I just realized I left my billfold." At home, and I don't like driving without my license. Do you mind terribly if I just stop by my house and get my billfold? And I thought, okay, I don't like this. When he stops, I'm going to get out. Well, I don't know if you know what Florida highways looked like that many years ago, but both sides were pretty much woods, far as, as far as you could see. Very, very thick woods. And you knew that the canals on either side of the road were full of alligators and water moccasins. 
I mean, that's that's not stuff of make-believe in spooky movies. That's the absolute truth. Are we talking about the like the Everglades? No, we're talking about inner Florida. Tampa is not really on the inside of Florida. It's not central Florida. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. But still in all, when you get out on, it wasn't the freeway then. They were highways, and they were not, they weren't well-traveled at night, and they weren't lit at all. And there are just heavy woods on either side, oh, boy, as far yeah. as you as far as you can see, miles and miles. Uh-huh. So we weren't coming to any stoplights. We were going away from town. And now I'm getting very concerned, very, very concerned. But that to, I've always felt that if you're feeling you're in jeopardy, uh, ignorance is the best route to take. It, it saved me many a time. And I was very young, but I was beginning to apply ignorance in a grand scale. I pretended <laughs> that I wasn't afraid. But I'm thinking, or if I jump out now, all I'll do is be running down a highway, a dark highway, and he's going to come right after me. I'm not going to get anywhere. So I thought, I just have to wait and see how this plays out. Well, he turned off of the highway onto a rutted road crossing the canal. You're going deeper into the woods now. I can't say I'm frightened, but I am really thinking of my alternatives, and I didn't have many. And I thought, this is not good. And we're going deeper into the woods. And I've actually got my hand on the door handle. But you've got to understand, if you jump out in the middle of thick woods, you not only have wild boars, which are very dangerous in Florida, you actually have mountain lions. And then you have, of course, your alligators and your snakes and all of that. So it, it, I couldn't see where I would run. Uh, anyway, he pulled into a clearing to our left. And in that clearing was a house trailer. Wow. And I thought, oh dear, he's going to try to get me to go into that trailer. Instead, he pulled into the clearing and he said, just let me run in and get my billfold. I'll be right back. So he actually left me alone there for a moment, which would give me a chance to open the door. But where would I run? There was no place to run. Yeah. So I thought, well, it's a good sign. He's not trying anything. He really went in by himself, and in a moment, here he came back out with his billfold. So I began to feel much better now. Maybe he was okay, because he kept up a little banter of conversation. It became very evident that I didn't know him and he didn't know me, but I didn't admit that I had realized that. I still went along with it. So now we're going back out on the highway now to go back toward town, we'd be turned to the left. He didn't, he turned to the right, which took us further away from town. And I said to him, where are we going now? And he said, I'll show you in a moment. We drove on a little ways further. During that time, he told me that he had been been in car racing and had had a terrible accident. I frankly wasn't so much listening as I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. We go another couple or three miles, and again, he turns to the right. Again, he goes into a deeply rutted two-lane, not even a road, it's two lanes. Straight ahead is a gravel pit, a huge gravel pit. You come into a gigantic opening with a gigantic gravel pit in it. But what I noticed was off in the distance ahead of me, way, way beyond the gravel pit, were the lights of a housing development. And I tried to think what's between the gravel pit and those lights of a housing development. There could be a river. There could be a stream. There could be things I wouldn't be able to cross. But I had to take my chances. I had to get to 
the housing development because there were lights there, but they were off in a distance. As he pulled into the gravel pit, I leaped out of the car. Of course, I'm on gravel and I have on shoes that have a little like inch and a half heel on it. And I kicked off my shoes as I ran. And I am just running through the darkness, headed toward those lights that are way off in the distance. But he tackled me from behind. And he grabbed me around my ankles and I fell to the ground on my face. And he pulled me back by my feet and he pulled me back to the driver's side of the car. And he picked me up and the driver's door was open, but so was the passenger door where I had jumped out. If you remember, cars in those days had bench seats, you know, not the bucket seats we have today, oh, but yeah. bench seats. Yeah. And when he pulled me to to standing position, he took his fist and he hit me in the jaw and he knocked me across on my back, across the bench seat. And I, I think I heard the click of a knife before I saw it, but he had a switchblade knife. And he just sort of landed kind of on top of me, but he put the blade, the tip of the knife under my chin. And he kept saying what he was going to do to me and he was going to kill me. And I didn't say anything. And oddly enough, I really, I wasn't afraid. It was as if I were detached from the situation and just looking at it analytically. That is odd, yeah. I didn't fight him. What was I going to fight? He was much stronger than me. And he was sort of tearing. I had a pretty little white dress with kind of a boat neck. And he was tearing at it, keeping this blade of this knife under my chin. But the way he had hit me, I landed across the bench seat so that my head was really outside, uh, off the bench. And I was staring directly up at the sky. And I was so fixed on the stars. It was like the sky was filled with a billion, billion stars. billions of stars and they were twinkling so brightly and they were so far away but they were so bright and at that moment I saw in my mind as clear and I can see it today as clear as a bell I saw the Tampa Tribune headlines in big black letters girl slain in gravel pit and I knew that I was seeing tomorrow's headline in the Tampa Tribune paper I knew it I knew that was the headline I wasn't afraid but I realized that I'd had a glimpse of something that was a premonition. And at that moment, still looking at the stars, I heard choirs of angels. Do you remember how wind chimes, when we were kids, were, it cost a dime at the dime store. They were made of glass, and you put them in your window, and they made soft little tinkly sounds. Yeah. Do you remember those? It was like that. It was like there were a billion glass tinkly sounds. Wow. And they were sweet and it was a choir singing, crystal clear through the night. And they came from the stars, and they said, Peace, be still. Tell him you love him. And it just sang it over and over like little chimes. Peace, be still. Tell him you love him. At that moment, I became aware of him. It turned out his name was Charlie. And I put my hands on the sides of his face, and I just said, Charlie, I love you. And he just stopped dead in his tracks. He hadn't really done any damage yet. You know how when you're in danger, everything goes to slow motion? Yeah. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that all of this took place in a split second. But thinking back on it, it's as if it lasted 
10, 15, 20 minutes because it was all so clear and so precise. Yeah. And he hadn't done anything but put the tip of that knife under my chin and tear at the top of my dress. Maybe he talked, maybe he didn't, I don't know. Anyway, I put my hands on his face and I said that and he stopped and he looked at me and he said, you love Charlie? I had come to realize that he had a mental problem, you know, <laughs> before this moment, but I said, yes, I love Charlie. And he sat up and he put the switchblade away and he said, oh, do you know what Charlie was going to do? Charlie was going to kill you. And I said, it's all right. You didn't. It's okay. And he tried to put my dress back together. He was patting it on me, gently patting my, my, he hadn't really torn it off. He was tearing at it and it was linen. It's hard to tear linen, but he was patting me and saying, Charlie started to hurt you. And you really love Charlie. Anyway, what happened is he said, Charlie's gonna take you home now, but you'll be Charlie's girl. Oh, you better know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I beat Charlie's oh, yeah. girl. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Angels say, love him. I beat Charlie's girl. Yeah. Anyway, I said, yes. So he got back in the driver's seat, and he just kept saying, you love Charlie. You love Charlie. And I sat really close to him. I really snuggled. And I put my, my hand on his arm just to pacify him, to calm him, yeah. to keep him calm. Yeah. And he backed up. And um, we left that gravel pit. And as we got back out on the highway, he turned to the left to go into town. Amazingly enough, there was a, an old service station. There used to be in those days, just those single unit service stations with two gas pumps out front. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was still open. And uh, just one little single light inside. And he pulled in to get some gas and stupid me. had my, my purse was still on the seat. And I took out my lipstick, and I don't know what I wrote on, but I wrote help. And I guess I'd seen, you know, too many movies, too many of these kinds of movies, because I put that out the window and watched the wind carry it over into a ditch. Anyway, Charlie came back out, and he gets in the car. And as we start out onto the highway again, he looks at me, and he says, you're lying to Charlie. And I said, no, no, I'm not. And he said, you go to a movie with me tomorrow night? And I said, absolutely. And um, he said, okay because he had already started to turn the wheel back to the right, which would take us back into the woods. Yeah. So he went on, he turned left, and he took me home. And um, the end of the story is it happened that my landlord was a deputy sheriff, and he was the first one I told. And my roommates, I don't think, believed me, but the de sheriff did, and he was waiting for Charlie the next night at 7 when he showed up, and I think Charlie ended up back in a mental hospital. But I will never forget seeing girls slaying in Gravel Pit and headlines Tampa Tribune and hearing the tens of thousands of angel voices singing like a, a choir of wind chimes. That yeah. is just amazing that you would hear these angels sing to you, tell Charlie that you love him, tell him you love him. Peace be still, Com tell him you love him. Completely changed the whole situation. Absolutely. Do you know what's really strange? I, I never held any ill will because he was sick. Yeah. But thank God he got off the streets because somebody could have gotten hurt. He got put away for a while, huh? I never heard what happened. You know, you can say what you want about the story. I was 19 years old. I was not, what, I didn't go to church, but I did always believe uh, in God and God's protection. But I wasn't asking for it that night. Isn't that odd? I didn't turn to God 
that I was divinely protected. Yeah, yeah. But this, mine isn't an isolated story. This is a common story, actually. It's not common to me because it only happened to me one time, but it's not unusual. People are rescued by angels and helped by angels many, many millions of probably times a day worldwide. Well, I've heard stories like that where people have had intervention by entities that they believed were angels. Do you remember when I first moved to Topeka? I just had one book out. My first book came out when I first moved to Topeka, the very month I moved here. And somehow from that year on, every I think it's every November, I'm not sure, but there's an event at the library that's called Kansas 50 Greatest Writers. And by some fluke, I got invited. And then it became a thing where every year I was there. So remember this story about me meeting Gladys Hargis? Yes. The woman who wrote a book called You Live Forever? Yes. Well, I'm going to tell that story, and then I think we're out of time. Okay. This is a unique story because it uniquely happened to this woman, happened to me. But it's a common story. It's happened to many people in different forms. When we finished up this day of uh, 50 writers gathered together at the library, we were all putting our unsold books back in our luggage or boxes or whatever they came in. And I just about finished mine, and a man came up to me. Now, I have to tell you, he was uh, maybe 5'8", and a very, very clean cut. I, he had thinning brown hair, and he had on a three-piece suit. It was brown, light brown, and he had the bluest eyes. My first impression was that he was either a minister or a missionary. And he said, Esther Luttrell, and I said, yes. He said, my wife would like you to have a copy of her book. Well, the one thing that writers do when they have unsold books is they trade them off with other writers and say, I'll give you a copy of mine if you give me a copy of yours. And we end up with a lot of books that we frankly never read. I'm sure they say the same thing about my books that they have, but I had an awful lot of books I, I just couldn't get around to reading, and I really didn't want his book. But I didn't want to hurt his feelings, and I said, well, thank you. And he said, my wife isn't a writer, but she felt she had to tell this story. And there's a lot of self-publishing, you know, now, today. So I wasn't surprised by she'd written a book and she wasn't a writer. Mm -hmm. And then he said she died and she went to heaven. And she came back and she just had to tell about it. Now that did get my attention. That really did. Yeah. His demeanor was just so precious. Uh, such a calm, sweet man. Uh, you would never doubt anything he says, believe me. And uh, I said, really? And he said... Our minister gave a sermon on it recently, but we've learned that a lot of ministers around the country have read this book, and they're giving sermons on it. Well, now, when he handed me the book, I really did take it with some interest. It was a very slender little volume with a pretty cover, and it said, You Live Forever. And I opened it, and on the first page it said, uh, Gladys Hargis, God bless. Uh, to Esther Gladys Hargis, God bless. And I didn't think anything about that either. He said, she's out in the rotunda is where she had her book set up. So before you go, if you could stop by and say hello, I know it would mean a lot to her. And I said, yes, I'll certainly try. And I did mean to, but he left and I went on getting my things ready to go. And then I helped a couple of people around me get their things ready. And by the time I got out to the rotunda, it was empty. Everybody had gone. I didn't think anything more about it. About four months went by, maybe five. 
sitting in my living room one day and I'm thinking, gee, I wish I had something good to read. And I just glanced around to see if anything popped out at me. They're sitting balanced on my little telephone table that hardly had room for the telephone was this book, You Live Forever. Now, believe me, in the last five months, I would have seen that if that had been there before. I don't know how it got there. And I picked it up, curious, and I started reading, and he was right. She was not a writer. But she told it with such simplicity and such honesty that it was obviously a farm lady who wanted to tell her story about dying and having gone to heaven. I read the book in, in, I'd say, an hour and a half, two hours, very slender little volume. But every page was filled with editorial mistakes. And when I finished it, I thought, what a shame. This book really should have an audience. It really should have a broad audience. It's a beautiful little book, and it has a message. And I believe her. And I thought, I wonder if she'd be offended if I call her and tell her I'd be glad to edit her book for her at no charge. In those days, we actually still had telephone books. And I looked her up, and there she was in the phone book. And I called her. She answered. And, and I said, you know, hi, this is Esther Luttrell. She didn't recognize the name. I told her, I just finished reading your book, and I think it's wonderful. But would I offend you if I pointed out that every page has editorial mistakes? They shouldn't be there. And I would be so happy to edit this for you and publish it for you. No charge. I just want to see it reach its highest potential. And she said, well, sure, honey, that'd be wonderful. She had this really, really deep farm voice. And she gave me her address. The next day I drive over, and as I get to the turnoff to her house, I flash on a picture of her husband. And I thought, he's so sweet. I hope he's there. I would love to see him again. What a gentle soul. So I pull in, and, and I go to the door, and I meet Gladys, and she is, she made three of him. When she stood in front of him, she had him surrounded, I'm sure. Oh, wow. She was a big lady. Wow. And just, just absolutely the most full-of-love person you could imagine. And she said, well, come on in, honey. So I go in, and she ends up sitting in a big chair, and I'm on a footstool. So she's telling me the story about what happened in heaven that she didn't put in the book. As she's talking to me, I'm looking over her shoulder and there's a shelf. And on the shelf is an eight by 10 frame picture of the man who gave me the book, obviously her husband. Uh -huh. But she's telling me this story about her going to heaven and she asked the angels if she could please go back and take care of her husband because he was very ill. And he depended on her so much. She, could she go back just to take care of him until he didn't need her anymore. And then she'd be glad to come back. And they granted her permission with the words, but you're on borrowed time. And she said, so I was allowed to come back. And I took care of him right up to the last. And I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, this big, wonderful woman has had two lovely husbands. The one she's talking about and then the lovely man who handed me the book in the picture behind her. So I said to her, you've had two husbands. And she said, well, heavens no, honey, I only had one husband. Where'd you get that? And I said, but you said that your husband died? She said, two years ago. And I said, but is that a picture of your husband behind you on the shelf? And she said, yes. And I said, but that's the man who gave me the book. And I told her what happened. And that definitely was him. And he'd been dead for two years. And you know what she said? Why, honey, he watches out for me. Because I got to thinking later of all the writers there, why'd he come to me? 
and nothing against the other writers, but maybe I'm the only one who would have said, let me fix your, let me fix it for you. Let me edit it for but you. But he handed you a physical book. Yes. I've still got it. And yes. you took it in your hand. Yes. Yes. And when That's I, amazing. And of course, I brought the book with me because I, I circled and read all of the mistakes I found on every single page. And so I said, but Gladys, and I opened the book, and it says, to Esther, Gladys Hargis, God bless. And she looked at it, and she said, honey, I never heard of you till you phoned me today. <laughs> But yet, the book was signed to you. Yes. Yes. That is truly amazing. That is that, amazing. That reminds me of the story you told me one time about your grandfather that you used to see sitting in the living room every every day. Well, every time I visited my grandma, yeah. he was always there. He was always there. And yeah. I didn't learn for 50-some-odd years when I happened to mention to my aunt, you know, I don't remember ever hearing him talk. And she said, well, I guess not, honey. He died years before you were ever born. That would be like somebody telling me two years from now, what do you mean Jack was with you on the on the Angels in Evidence show? Well, he he died the January before. See, it, it, you've had so many amazing experiences like that in your lifetime. Well, I know, but then I was concerned about having this kind of a show because, as you say, there are so many people involved in Mojave Beach Productions, and I didn't want to discredit us. I didn't want people to think, oh, my goodness, she's one of those kooks. But I think there comes a time when you have to say, just let the chips fall where they may. This happened. I'm just reporting what happened. I'm not telling you how it happened. I don't know. It just happened. I'm just reporting. But, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording. I think when people haven't experienced something themselves, that they're inclined to take their what they do believe, what they have, what, whatever it is that they may have experienced, and they call it the total of that phenomena, the total. And so if anything goes outside of their own experiences, they say it isn't real. A phenomena is just that. Well, and that's true, but I think these days we are seeing so many shows about the paranormal. But you I know, don't believe half of them. Well, you don't have to, do you? No, I guess I don't. <laughs> Does anybody have to believe your your stories? No. Does anybody have to believe my stories about no. experiences that we have had? They're all purely subjective. You're, you have contact with somebody who is passed on and is in the spirit world on the other side. But I don't have a crystal ball, and I'm not having a seance. No. And I think there's something very, very dangerous about trying to call on a spirit. I think oh. you're opening yourself up to all kinds of scary things. Don't do that. Yes, I, I, I agree with I that. I say be open-minded, be receptive. But, you know, like President Lincoln and his, his wife was a spiritualist. She used to hold seances in the White House all the time. And what does that hook up with here? Well, I'm just saying there's a lot of that, you know, at that time. A lot of that going on. Spiritualism became a very popular thing. There's, how to say this, I'm very cautious about what I believe because I'm very cautious about what I let into my consciousness because yeah. I think we do attract that which we concentrate on. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to sit here and dwell on supernatural. I don't want to dwell on anything that takes me away from what I have to do every day just to get from day to day but at the same time I'm very aware that I don't do anything that whatever I do is God working through me and once in a while my own free will gets really in the way 
And I think he stands back and says, there she goes again. And I go off and I make all my mistakes and I do things wrong. And then suddenly the angels are there to protect and God is there to guide. And yes. But, you know, I think the important question here is life after death. Do we live beyond this life? I believe we do. I, can, I don't even call it life after death. I call it life after life because life is a continuum. Exactly. It's just a continuum. And, and in truth, we never die. I don't. I believe we don't. That's because, what I believe. But we're in direct opposition with with religions who do believe oh, that if yes. you're dead, you're in the ground. Yes. And I don't. I am not going to stand here and say, wiggle my finger at them and say you're wrong, wrong, wrong. You know what? I don't know. All I know is what I experience. That's all I you really know. know. And I don't know the meanings of the things I experience. I don't know the meanings. Well, it's I, just like that one guy that we didn't talk about, but the guy who wrote. Oh, what book was that? Where Hello he, from Heaven, Bill Hello Guggenheim. From heaven, yeah. Where he went around the country. Seven years. And he, he was basically an agnostic. He was an atheist. An atheist. He did not believe. And he had experiences that turned him into a believer. He believed in life after death. When, when I had my radio show in Florida, I met this young man who was going around with his book, Hello from Heaven. I wish I had had shows like this or talked more to people about things like this because I was not a good host at all. I really wasn't ready to talk about it. I didn't know what to do with that information. I wasn't willing to talk to other people about it. So when he comes on and he's telling me that his wife Judy was very much a believer and she's the one who talked him into taking seven years of their life and going around the world, talking to people who had had communication with their loved ones who had passed over without the aid of a Ouija board or, right. or, or a media. Direct communication. Yes, direct, yes. unexpected communication. Yes. Uh -huh. Well, what made Judy feel that they needed to pursue it is that this atheist Bill, who was in the financial world, had something happen to him. Someone had passed over and they gave him a message and he was absolutely astounded. He found it so incredulous. He didn't know what to do with it. And of course, it was right in line with what Judy had always believed. So Bill very reluctantly decided more to expose it than to confirm. He thought he would find fraud everywhere and liars everywhere. And instead, they wrote Hello from Heaven. I've always had a problem with thinking that when we die, we either go to heaven or hell. I'm not good enough to go to heaven, and I'm not bad enough to go to hell. There must be some place for me. But anyway, we're out of time now, so we've got to go. Hey, let's do well, it. Let's do an episode, too. Let, let me mention one one more thing before okay. we go. Daniel Brinkley. He got struck by lightning, died, and went to the other side. He went to heaven, and, he, and they sent him back. They said yeah. he had work to do, so he came back. Mm -hmm. And this man used to be a sniper for the CIA. Well, he came back and he stopped doing that. He started going around the world talking to people. He goes to a hospital and he goes to the terminal ward. Oh, does he? And he talks to the people in the terminal ward. Mm -hmm. And his message to the world is, we do not die. I believe that. First of all, we're made of star stuff. I mean, literally, if you take it, break us down into what we're made of, it's stuff that can't be destroyed. Yeah. So what death does is that we can change form but we can't die. Yeah, And our, I believe that life our, is a continuum. Our spirit goes on. Yeah. It leaves this body and goes on to the other side mm -hmm. and it continues to exist. 
And that's what I believe, and I know that's what you believe. Absolutely. And and I this is something that I read, and somebody convinced me. You know, so much of what people say they believe is what they've been taught. Yeah. I, I wish people would believe what happens to them. I wish they would open themselves up to, to feeling what happens to them and form their beliefs based on that. You know, all of my friends are dying. I reached an age now where my friends are just popping off left and right. And someone said to me when I had my birthday the other day, why do you think you've, you've gotten to live to this great age? And that, that makes you feel good on your birthday. But I said, well, because I think God says, okay, you can come home now. You've got it right. You, come on, come on. You, oh, absolutely, you got it, honey. You got it right. You got it. Leave her. She's still working on it. She'll <laughs> get it sooner or later. <laughs> but see, that's, that's the, I mean, death, death and taxes. Yeah. We all will die. Every single person on Except this earth. Except we won't die. We will all we, pass through here. We will pass through here, but the bodies that we inhabit now, they will go by the wayside. You don't know that, and I don't know it either, because when I saw Dean, he looked just the same as he always did. Well, that's what our spirits, that's, as I understand it, our spirits look exactly like we do here. But uh, we don't know. And everything that I say I experienced, all I know is what I experienced. Yeah. I can't tell you one thing in front of it or behind it or to one side of it. Yeah. I don't know. We have so much to be surprised about. I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do. Okay, so if anybody's listening, you think anybody's listening, if they <laughs> <laughs> want to hear more of this, we could do episode two and talk about spiritual encounters. And those are things where, where we sense something or there is a scent or there is a definite message. And But uh, if you want to do this again... We could talk about. Well, we, we could think about it. Encounters. I think we probably we're, we're probably about done with the message this time around, though. I think we are. Thank you, Jack, for being here. Oh, I'm, the pleasure is mine. Till next time, bye, everybody. The Voice of Helona presents Angels in Evidence, made possible by the Forgiveness Foundation International, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the support of all aspects of forgiveness among families, communities, businesses, and personal relationships. Visit their website at www.forgivenessfoundationinternational.com. And be sure to read Helping Children and Teens Forgive by the founder of the Forgiveness Foundation, Dr. Jim Denkowsey. Angels in Evidence was produced by Esther Luttrell. Jack Diamond of internet radio station WREN was co-host. The Voice of Helona theme was composed and performed by David Feslian of Feslian Studios. We invite you to pick up a copy of Esther's book, Evidence of God, through Amazon. Read it wherever ebooks are sold, or enjoy it as an audio production right here on Mojave Beach Productions. Till next time, this is Jeff Evans, wishing you the very best of everything life has to offer. Beach Productions. I just want to take a moment to thank you for soaring with us on the wings of imagination as you listen to stories we're having so much fun creating for you. If you enjoy what you hear, take a moment to subscribe to Mojave Beach Productions on your favorite podcast app. And thanks a million. <laughs>